If you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, a pretty familiar passage maybe to some. It says, Then when Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking, Peter, uh, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And Jesus said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death, so remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Meaning, meaning that the crucifixion and the betrayal and the shame that he knows is coming. He's saying, praying to his father, saying, if, if there's another way, God, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And then he came back to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, so you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then again, for a second time, Jesus went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then again, he came and found his disciples sleeping, for their eyes were too heavy. And leaving them, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. And he came to his disciples again and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. So rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. God, again, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is it is alive and active. God, it is trustworthy. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us and that you continue to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began a series last week entitled uh, Struggling to Believe. And the goal for the series, even as we said at the beginning, is, um, is really to address head on so many of the common objections to Christianity, uh, to Christ, objections to the Christian message and to the Christian scriptures. And so we'll address some of the issues like uh, heaven and hell. We'll address issues about suffering. Why do, why do bad things happen? Why does God allow evil into the world? Um, we'll address questions and objections to Christian hypocrisy and more. And this week we're asking the question, and this is a, a follow-up to last week, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? Because really it, it, it begins and ends with how we relate to Scripture. So this is part two of a two-part series. And so if you weren't here with us last week, uh, you're welcome to go online, listen to the sermons, download the sermon. Last week we said that the questions about uh, the validity of the Christian scriptures usually revolve around these three primary areas, and I think I should have these on the screen. The questions are these, are the stories in the Bible legends, meaning are they myths, are they simply not true? Um, are the stories in the Bible lies? So maybe the disciples or the writers of Scripture were trying to promote a particular uh, religious or political agenda, were they just lying? Or third, are the stories in the Bible lost in translation? Meaning, do we even really have, when we open up our English Bibles on our laps, is this really even what the disciples originally said? So those are the questions. Are, are, the, are, the, are the books of the Bible, are the stories of the Bible, are they legend? Are they lies? Or could they be lost in translation? So last week we addressed the issue of, of, of lies, and this week we'll address, or of legend, this week we'll address the issue of lies and lost in translation. And for our purposes, 
we're going to focus specifically on the Gospels. Um, and we're doing that for a couple of reasons. The Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. The, this is, uh, the Gospels serve as our primary source for the life and teachings of Jesus. So we're going to start there. And we start with the Gospels because Jesus makes very important claims in the Gospels themselves about who He is. He claims divinity in the Scriptures. He, he, he makes specific claims about the rest of Scripture. All throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus performing miracles. We, we read about him, about him calming the storm, this raging storm, with just His command. We even read a story about resurrection. So it makes sense for us to start with the Gospels because if the Gospels aren't trustworthy, you see, if the Gospels aren't trustworthy, then we can dismiss the rest of the New Testament. Now, we, we're, we're not going to dismiss it as unimportant. It's a very important uh, ancient document. But we can dismiss the New Testament as the ultimate authority over our lives if it's not trustworthy. But if it is trustworthy, we have to reckon with it. And so are the Gospels legends? Are they lies or are they lost in translation or are they reliable? And let me give you just a little bit of a disclaimer. And I said uh, this last week, this, this may feel, this sermon may feel uh, a little information heavy. It may feel a little, a little luxury. Uh, but I, I hope that you'll bear with me. If you're new with us, um, we spend the vast majority of our time um, reading and preaching through books of the Bible, just essentially verse by verse, going through books of the Bible. Uh, and as we're doing now, we're even a very extended series on the Gospel of Luke. But every once in a while, we take a break from those extended uh, series through a particular book uh, to focus on maybe uh, a particular area of the Christian life. And so this series is really a break from our lengthy study in the Gospel of Luke to address this question of for those struggling to believe, for those who are asking hard questions. And I know there are many of you in here who are asking those hard questions of the Bible, asking hard questions about Jesus and about your own faith, about what all this is really about and how, how trustworthy is this very old book. And I pray really that this would be an opportunity for us to, to worship the Lord in that sense, the goal of the sermon is the same goal as all the sermons, that we would, that this would propel us to worship the Lord, and that the, the contents of this message, uh, even if it feels a little information heavy, even if it feels a little luxury, that the contents of this message um, would propel us to love Him. Even as Jesus said, you remember in, in the Gospels, He says, um, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so I pray this morning that our minds would be stirred, our hearts would be stirred. The, the, the goal for this sermon is to focus our eyes on Scripture, to ask hard questions of the text and uh, of God, and hopefully to see, as we said already, the, the Word behind the Word. The Word behind the Word. The Word, as John says, made flesh, and for us to worship all the more. So let's jump right in. Are the Gospels really lies? Are they lies? Did, did these guys just make it up? Last week, again, we asked the question about, are they legends? There are some who concede that the Gospels are not legends, so they can listen to a sermon like last week and say, I'll buy that. I believe they're not legends, per se. But they still object that the Gospels are ultimately just lies. That this is, These are lies by the disciples, lies by the Gospel writers, uh, to promote their own particular political and theological agenda. 
They had a sort of ax to grind. They were trying to push their movement forward. And so they were telling these stories about Jesus as though they happened, but they really didn't. Jesus didn't claim to be God. He was just a man. He didn't do miracles. He was very ordinary. And so they lied about this story. But let me tell you, those accusations don't really stand up. And let me give you a couple reasons. And there are many, but let me give you just a few. Number one, the the authors themselves are very self-deprecating, and I'll talk about what we mean by that. The authors are self-deprecating. Their message is wholly counterproductive to push a movement forward in the ancient world because of so many reasons. And third, we see that they are personally and completely transformed themselves. So again, just this broad categories, the, the, the writers um, are self-deprecating, they are counterproductive, their message is counterproductive, and the authors, as well as the other disciples, were completely transformed. So what do I mean when I say that the authors and the author's message uh, was self-deprecating? We saw last week that the Gospels were written, the Gospels were written very early, as we talked last week. They pointed to several eyewitnesses who were on the ground, who were alive not only when the events happened, but were also still alive when these stories and these letters and these books were being disseminated. And the Gospels include detail um, common in a way to those reporting the news in the first century and not common in a way um, for those writing fiction in the first century. These guys were telling you simply how it was. And there were eyewitnesses on the ground who could have refuted their message if it wouldn't have been true. And the reason to point to eyewitnesses, the the reason to point to these eyewitnesses, the reason to give um, all these specific details, even unimportant details, was essentially to promote the credibility of the author, right? They're, they're making very clear, we're, we're talking to these eyewitnesses, we're doing our reporting, we're providing all these key details that otherwise uh, don't develop characters or push, push the f- plot forward. They simply, that's the way it happened, and we want to tell you how it happened. Their goal was to promote their own credibility because the reliability of a book or letter was completely dependent on the reliability of the writer, Right? So if you, wanted to, if you wanted someone to trust what you wrote, they first needed to trust you. And so that's what they're doing by providing these details, by pointing to eyewitnesses, and so on. And yet, knowing that the whole, the whole hope of their message being embraced is, is based on their reliability and on people trusting them, they consistently, throughout the Gospels, they, they give a very self-deprecating message. They, they don't paint themselves or the other disciples in a very flattering light. They don't position themselves as authorities. They just position themselves essentially as bystanders who watch this thing happen. So consider the story that we just read. Consider the story of Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. So as we, as we discussed last week, the Gospels record amazing amount of detail. This story is no exception. But the details that this story includes are very unflattering to the writers. Very unflattering to the disciples themselves. In fact, really even very unflattering to Jesus. At, the, at this critical moment before Jesus is, this is happening right before um, Judas betrays Jesus uh, to the Roman guards, the Jewish authority, and they actually meet them in, the, the soldiers meet Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Brandy and I have actually stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, an amazing place. They met them there, and that's where they arrested and began this, uh, this foolish trial to convict Jesus, and he is ultimately 
crucified. Now, Jesus knows all of this is going to happen. And so he's there in the garden. He knows it's right there and minutes away. And so what he does is he comes to the disciples and he says, I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray with me. And he says, I I am troubled. I am distressed. I'm distressed even to the point of death. I just need you to sit and watch and pray with me. And so Jesus goes and he prays. He's bringing his concerns to God. He's confessing to God. He's saying, God, if there's another way, I don't want this to happen, but God, I'll I'll, I'll submit to your will. If this is what you want, this is what I'm going to do. And he goes and finds his disciples. And what are they doing? They're asleep. They're asleep. And he says, can't, can't you stay awake even for just an hour? This is all I'm asking you to do in this most critical moment. Just stay awake and pray that the hour is coming when I will be betrayed. So he wakes them up, tells them that again. He goes off. He begins to pray. In fact, in part of this story, he's bringing Peter and the sons of Zebedee with him. He's praying with them. They can't stay awake. In this critical hour. And remember, it's the disciple who's writing this book, the disciple Matthew. So he's he's essentially telling on himself and telling on his fellow disciples that we couldn't we couldn't hack it. We can stay away. We were just too tired. Our eyes were too heavy. And again and again, Jesus goes to them and he says, I need you to stay awake, I need you to pray, and they every time fall asleep. And even Jesus. Think about what they're saying about Jesus in this moment. If you're trying to promote uh, this lie about this human man who claimed to be God, you wouldn't be presenting it like this. They're, they're saying that of Jesus, um, they're, they're portraying him as, as really weak. They're portraying him in an unflattering way. They're, they're noting how distraught he was, how overwhelmed he was, and even that he asked God to take this cup away. The, to take, I don't want to do this, God. If there's another way, let me do that thing, something easier. But he says, not my will, but yours. And so you see that this this paints everyone in a bad light. Why would they include it? Why would they include this story unless it was simply the way it happened? All throughout the Gospels, the disciples are prayed as fools, as disobedient. Repeatedly, they don't understand. In in all of the Gospels, Mark 9, they did not understand what he was saying. They were afraid to ask. In Luke 18, none of them understand it. They could not grasp what Jesus was saying. In John 12, they did not understand what Jesus was saying at first. These are disciples. These are eyewitnesses and disciples writing these books saying, we just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. The disciples, as mentioned last week, were frequently described as doubting Jesus and doubting Jesus' claims. The gospel writers note that Jesus often rebuked his disciples. They even tell the story that Jesus went so far to to call Peter, um, he, he referred to him as Satan for not setting his mind on the things of God. And this would be the head of the church in years to come. Why would they say those things? It would discredit these men terribly unless it were actually true. The gospel writers and disciples are noted as being cowards, as deserters. Even, again, Peter, at this most critical hour, curses and denies any connection to Jesus whatsoever, repeatedly after his death. The gospel writers were self-deprecating. They were unflattering. They, they told a story that was not helpful to their message. And not only were they self-deprecating, they were also counterproductive. 
They were, they were telling even information in a way that would make all of those readers in the first century think, these guys are nuts, unless it were true. Not only do the, do the Gospels contain embarrassing and self-deprecating descriptions of themselves, but um, as we said, the, the Gospels also include very unflattering language about Jesus, as we saw in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' own brothers, those closest to him, those who grew up with him, did not believe Jesus. He was frequently called a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Even called, uh, he, even, They even condemned him as being possessed by a demon, by those who witnessed his miracles. As we said, many of Jesus' own followers deserted him. Jesus at one point allowed, allowed a, 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 a prostitute to wash his feet with her hair. Just an, an insane kind of story in the first century world. I mean, that would immediately discredit him if you're just reading about the story secondhand. This is, this, you would not think that this is the Messiah who'd come to save the world. He didn't commit, condemn the woman caught in adultery in John 8. All of this would be so counterproductive for those concocting a lie to advance a particular religious or political agenda or to advance a religious or political movement. Instead, these stories would have actually discredited them and discredited Jesus. But they simply told it the way it was. One writer put it this way, why would the leaders of the early church movement, these gospel writers, why would they have made up stories about the crucifixion if it didn't happen? Any listener of the gospel in either Greek or Jewish culture would have automatically suspected that anyone who had been crucified was a criminal. Whatever the speaker said to the contrary, why would any Christian make up an account of Jesus asking God in the Garden of Gethsemane if he could get out of his mission? Why ever make up the part on the cross when Jesus cries out to God, we're abandoning him. These things would have not only offended or deeply confused first century prospective converts, they would have concluded that Jesus was in fact weak. He was failing. He was not God. The only plausible reason that these incidences and so many others would be included in these accounts is that they really actually happened. The gospel writers were self-deprecating. The gospel writers were counterproductive. And this, um, in some ways, may be most compelling of all. The gospel writers and the disciples were personally and completely transformed themselves. It's interesting that as you're reading the gospels, as, as we've already noted, the, the, the disciples are transformed almost immediately after the resurrection. Almost immediately after the resurrection from, from cowards, from deserters, from, from those cursing Jesus' name, from being hopeless and being fearful at the crucifixion, to being amazingly confident, bold witnesses of the gospel. I mean, literally overnight, these men are transformed. All of the disciples, some of you know this, all of the disciples, except for John, who died in exile, were martyred. All of them were killed. James was killed by the sword. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't see himself worthy enough to be crucified in the way Jesus was crucified. Andrew was, was crucified. Thomas was thrust with spears, tormented with red-hot plates, burned alive. Philip was crucified. Matthew was beheaded. Bartholomew flayed and then crucified. James was beaten to death. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Judas Thaddeus, beaten with sticks. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, he was stoned while hanging on a cross. And Paul, of course, was allegedly beheaded by Nero in Rome. 
These were the men who were with him. These were the men who wrote these books. You see? It is, un- it is unthinkable, isn't it, church? It's unthinkable that all of these men and countless others throughout the centuries would have given their lives for a known fraud. It's unreasonable. If you're being intellectually honest with yourself, if you're, willing, if you're really willing to ask the hard questions, then you have to come to terms with why in the world would the disciples have done that? If they're promoting a lie, they had every, every chance to recant. It's unreasonable to think that the Gospels were lies. But let me ask you this question. Could the, disciples, could, could the Gospels be lost in translation? So maybe what we have is just not true. It's just not the way it happened. So if the Gospels aren't legends, and if they are not lies, could they be lost in translation? In other words, maybe what was written 2,000 years ago is simply not what we have now in our modern translations. This is not the same thing. So we're dealing with a different story. Maybe the story got jumbled through the centuries. How can we trust that the Bible that we hold in our hands is faithful to the original? How can we know the Gospels are reliable and not just lost in translation? Here's here's a very simple answer, and we'll go into this. Very simple answer. We have far too many manuscripts that are far too old from different languages and different cultures with astounding accuracy among thousands of remaining documents. Now, that may not seem like much. I, I, was, a, I was an undergraduate um, biblical language major, so I had to dive deep into this. But comparatively to other ancient documents, the, the accuracy and the historic reliability is just astounding. Thousands of manuscripts written far too old, too close to the events that occurred, in different languages, in different cultures, with unparalleled accuracy among thousands of manuscripts. You, you can know with confidence because of overwhelming evidence that what you hold in your hands is what the original authors originally wrote. I have this on the screen here, a quote from Craig Bloomberg, a New Testament scholar. He says, more so than with any other literary work of antiquity, okay? More so than with any other literary work of antiquity, we can have enormous confidence in reconstructing what the original text of the Gospels most likely said. While none of the autographs, meaning the actual originals, while none of the autographs remain, the sheer volume of manuscripts from tiny fragments to complete New Testaments, thousands in the ancient Greek alone, far outstrip what we have from any other Jewish, Greek, or Roman literature where historians often consider themselves fortunate to have manuscripts numbering in the double figures. They're thrilled to have 10. The New Testament has thousands, thousands and thousands of manuscripts. One writer said it would never occur, it would never occur to skeptics of the Bible. I mean, when you, when you go to college, do you hear people trying to poke holes in, in Plato or in the Iliad? No, they just assume that that's, that's got to be true. That's got to be accurate. That's a true, trustworthy, ancient text, even mythological. It would never occur to the skeptics of the Bible to question the writings of Plato or Sophocles or Homer or Caesar when we have fewer than 10 copies of each book. And those copies were made about a thousand years after the authors wrote the original. In the case of the New Testament, we have thousands and thousands of ancient copies written no later than 100 years after the events described. 
So based on existing manuscripts, the New Testament is one of the most reliable documents in the ancient world. Astoundingly. These manuscripts are, are housed in museums. Many of you guys have seen these probably in museums throughout the world, uh, in, in archives around the world. They can, be, they can be matched with unparalleled accuracy to the modern translations. An argument, an argument against, let me put it this way, an argument for the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible is about a thousand times greater than an argument for the historicity or the accuracy of Plato's Republic or Homer's Iliad or Caesar's Gaelic Wars. Over a thousand times more defendable. Based on actual historical manuscript evidence, the, the word of God is not legend. The word of God is not lies. The word of God has not been lost in translation. Here's the good news, church. But it is living. It is living. God not only spoke to us through these ancient books, these ancient manuscripts, but He speaks to us today through His Son. The writer of Hebrews says specifically in Hebrews 1, he says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to, him, spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the living, active Word of God. And he, His is the only Word. His Word about you, His Word about me, is the final Word about us. However we can understand ourselves, however we can understand our future, however we can understand our purpose, it is ultimately and decisively only the Word from Jesus, where we stand with Him. This beautiful passage in, in Hebrews says, after making purification for our sins, what does it say he did? He sat down. What does that mean? Why is that important? It says, after making purification for our sins, Jesus just sat down at the right hand of the Father, meaning it was completely done. There was nothing else for you to do. This isn't something you have to earn. This is something that Jesus did for you. This is what John says in John chapter 1. He says, he says that the Word of God, this beautiful language, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Coming to terms with the Bible, coming to terms with those 66 books that you hold in your hand, means coming to terms with Jesus. Coming to terms with Jesus, the living Word of God. I'll read you this quote from a book, For All God's Worth, by N.T. Wright. He says this is a beautiful paragraph. He says, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It either means what it says in the Bible that Jesus really is God. He really did die for our sins. He really was resurrected in victory, giving us life forever. 
It either means that, that we're forgiven people, that we're made for a purpose, that we have eternal hope, or it means nothing. It's so silly. In fact, it's offensive if it's not true. But if it is true, it changes everything. It says Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things. And this is the sad news. Many of us, we're sort of happy in the middle. We're like, yeah, there's some good stuff about the Bible. Jesus was a good teacher. There's some good stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the other stuff from Paul and whoever else, eh. We sort of take it or leave it, right? And we, we carve out for ourselves this, what we think is a very safe place in the middle, but that's utterly foolish. That's, it's, either, it's either all true or should be completely dismissed as authoritative for our lives. The hurricane has become human. He says, most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things condemn ourselves to live in a shallow world in between. I encourage you, church, to go to the Word. Embrace the Bible, not, because it's, not only because it's trustworthy, it is trustworthy, but because, it's, because it is also made alive in the person of Jesus, who is, as he says, the only way, the ultimate truth, and the source of eternal life.